energy so stalling, yeah. Everybody's running scared. We used to be so carefree, we used to be so happy, used to have everything we need. Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens, beautiful people everywhere? It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I am your host. Hey there, beautiful people. How's everyone doing? I pray that you're all doing as well as you can be. Welcome to another episode of Village Mentality. I'm so glad to have you all here with me in the village. Now, if you did not have the opportunity to hear last week's episode, then I invite you to catch up with that and all past episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Anchor, or Radio Public. Now, I also provide links to each episode on both Instagram and Facebook, and I'll share those links with you at the end of the show. Now, you know by now that every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you are more than welcome to join me right here in the village as I talk about different topics that impact us as BIPOC communities. And of course, there will be times when I will talk about self-care practices that can help to rejuvenate your spirit and soul so that you can continue to be the fantabulous kings and queens that you most definitely are. And I will be right here every week to remind you. And please note that all the topics that are discussed here on my show will be looked at through a mental health perspective, which is at the very heart of everything that I talk about here on the show. Now, without further ado, I believe that it's time for me to take my first walk of the evening to my musical jukebox. Our first song of the evening is the debut solo single by this American singer who has worked with R&B legends, Kenneth Babyface Edmonds, Daryl Simmons, Bo Watson, and L.A. Reid. Now, this song was originally written for Anita Baker and You know, as fabulous as I think that Anita Baker is, and she is fabulous, I still believe that things turned out for the best. Now, Anita Baker, she declined the song because at the time she was expecting. Now, this was one of the songs that was featured on that smash hit, Boomerang. You know, the one that featured Eddie Murphy and Robin Givens, Martin Lawrence, and a whole slew of others, right? It was uh, that romantic comedy that was released in 1992. It reached the top five on Billboard's hot R&B hip hop songs. It also peaked at number four and it entered the top 40 of the UK singles chart. So here's the first lady of LaFace Records, a star in her own right, Miss Toni Braxton with Love Should Have Brought You Home Last Night. 
Trinidadian British singer Billy Ocean with Caribbean Queen. The song was co-written and produced by Keith Diamond. It climbed to number one on both the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and the Billboard Black Singles chart, number six on the U.K. Singles chart. The song won Billy Ocean the 1985 Grammy Award for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance, making him the first British artist to win in that category. Well, Village, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. They call me Mr. Tibbs, was his response to a sheriff in rural Mississippi that asked, what do they call you in Philadelphia? After mentioning that Virgil was a strange name for a colored boy, he became the first African-American and Bahamian 
to win the Academy Award for Best Actor in Lilies of the Field, but we'll talk about that a little later. He was one of the last surviving major stars from the golden age of Hollywood cinema. Sidney Poitier's family lived in the Bahamas, which was then still a crown colony, which means it was under British rule. But he was born on February 20th, 1927, unexpectedly in Miami while they were visiting, which automatically granted him U.S. citizenship. He was the youngest of seven children. Now, he was born three months premature and he wasn't expected to survive. So his parents stayed in Miami for those three months to nurse him to health. Some believe that the Poitier ancestors had migrated here from Haiti and were probably among the runaway slaves who established maroon communities throughout the Bahamas, including Cat Island. Poitier was originally a French name. Now, there were no white Poitiers nearby in the Bahamas. However, there had been a white Poitier on Cat Island. The name came from planter Charles Leonard Poitier, who had emigrated from Jamaica in the early 1800s. And in 1834, his wife's estate on Cat Island had 86 enslaved people who kept the name Poitier, a name that had been introduced into the Anglosphere since the Norman Conquest in the 11th century. So Sidney, he grew up in the Bahamas, but he moved to Miami at age 15. And he was then sent to um, live with his brother and his large family. At 16, he moved to New York City, looking to become an actor, holding a string of jobs as a dishwasher in the meantime. After failing at his first audition with the American Negro Theater, which is what it was known of as um, at that time, due to his inability to read the script, an elderly Jewish waiter sat with him every night for several weeks, helping him learn how to read using the newspaper. So, you know, when you see this interview, beautiful people, between Sir Sidney Poitier and I believe it was Diane Stahl on CBS Sunday Morning, and it was a few years back, he recalls that time. And clearly it was still so very emotional for him, right? His sense of appreciation for that man was palpable. To think that this man was able to sense the fact that he could not read, but that he was able to see beyond that and to see Sydney for the greatness that was contained within. He didn't embarrass him or humiliate him or even let on to anyone else that Sydney could not read. But after the restaurant closed and everyone else went home, this man stayed with Sydney and read the paper every single night. He could have been home with his wife, his, his own family, right? But he stayed there every single night. And one thing that I love about this story is that when the man asked if he wanted help, Sydney said yes. He did not allow pride or his ego stand in the way of making himself better. And he trusted that this man was well-intentioned. Now, those are the kinds of people that we all look for in our lives, right? Here's something else that you may not know. He was tone deaf, <laughs> which made him unable to sing. But determined to refine his acting skills and rid himself of his noticeable Bahamian accent, he spent the next six months dedicating himself to achieving theatrical success. 
and he modeled his legendary speech pattern after radio personality Norman Brokenshire. He was nicknamed Sir Silken Speech, and he was a familiar voice on the radio in the 1940s. And he was also the first radio announcer to break from anonymity and to use his own name on the air. Now, Village, there are so many movies to talk about that he was in, but for the sake of time, there are a few of his performances that I would like to highlight, okay? So if you can just bear with me. Now, Sidney Poitier acted in the first production of A Raisin in the Sun alongside Ruby Dee on the Broadway stage at the Ethel Barrymore Theater in 1959. The play was directed by Lloyd Richards, Richards, excuse me. And this play, it introduced details of black life to the overwhelmingly white Broadway audiences. While director Richards observed that it was also the first play to which large numbers of black people were drawn, right? So the play was a groundbreaking piece of American theater. And Frank Rich, who was a critic from the New York Times, he wrote in 1983 that A Raisin in the Sun changed American theater forever. Now, Sidney would later star in the film adaptation in 1961, in which he received a Golden Globe nomination. Also in 1961, Sidney Poitier starred in Paris Blues, and this was alongside Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Louis Armstrong, and Diane Carroll. In the film, it dealt with the American racism of the time by contrasting it with Paris's open acceptance of Black people, right? And, you know, we've heard in our history before that another person that talked a lot about, you know, France with regard to the way it treated people of color was Miss Josephine Baker. She was born an American citizen, but she actually had dual citizenship in France and remained there for much of her life when she left the U.S. Now, in 1963, Sidney Poitier, he starred in Lilies of the Field. And it was for this role, as I mentioned earlier, that he won the Academy Award for Best Actor. And he became the first Black male to win the award. Now, in 1967, he was the most successful draw at the box office. This was the commercial peak of his career with three very popular films, okay? The first was To Sir With Love, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Now, in To Sir With Love, Poitier plays a teacher at a secondary school in the East End of London. The film deals with social and racial issues in the inner city school. The film was met with mixed response. However, Poitier was praised for his performance with the critics from Time Magazine writing, even the weak moments are saved by Poitier who invests his role with a subtle warmth, right? That was a sweet film, actually. That was a really sweet film. Now in Norman Jewison's mystery drama, In the Heat of the Night, Sydney played Virgil Tibbs, a police detective from Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love, who investigates a murder in the deep south of Mississippi alongside a cop with racial prejudices of his own, which was played by Rod Steiger. The film was a critical success with 
Bosley Crowther, who was with the New York Times, and he called it the most powerful film he had seen in a long time. Roger Ebert placed it at number 10 on his top 10 list of 1967 films, and Art Murphy of Variety felt that the excellent Sidney Poitier and outstanding Steiger performances overcame noteworthy flaws, including an uneven script. <laughs> I bet they would call it that. Now, Sydney received a Golden Globe Award and British Academy Film Award nomination for his performance in that film. Now, let me tell you, beautiful people, there was a scene in this movie that was one of the most powerful ever seen, at least to that point, because when you consider the racial climate of the day, it gives like such extra meaning to it, right? And it defines who Sidney Poitier was and what he wanted to relay to the world on behalf of African-American people everywhere. He knew that in this scene, while questioning a white man about a murder that had taken place in this small town, that the script called for him to be slapped by the man. <laughs> because <laughs> in those times, no black man dared, you know, ask or was supposed to question a white man. Like, what's wrong with you? Well, he had it written in his contract <laughs> that when he got slapped, he was going to slap that man back. Yup, that was the slap felt around the country. And I said up until that point, even if you see that today, it means something, okay? Now, the character in the movie that got slapped back <laughs> actually said to the sheriff, did you see that? In utter and complete disbelief. And the sheriff, the sheriff he says something like, I saw it, but I, I don't believe it. Now, of course, you know, the white man wants to know what the sheriff's going to do about it, but he, he tells Virgil Tibbs, you know, there was a time when I could have had you shot. And Virgil just looks at him and then he walks away. Now, of course, no one is promoting any kind of violence, but Sidney Poitier demonstrated in his roles, dignity and respect, not only for himself, but for his people. He was not afraid to show another side to us. He was not willing to belittle himself so that white people could be entertained. He spoke to the racial issues that continue to this very day but at a time when it was not always prudent to do so. Now, in what I believe is my favorite movie that Sir Sidney was in, guess who's coming to dinner? I swear, y'all, that I could watch this movie over and over and over again because it was rich with themes about race, about generational differences, and, and how we saw ourselves. It dealt with interracial relationships, relationships between parents and children. It was a gold mine, in my opinion. And some of the quotes from that movie just slay me. And I believe that they are just so poignant. Like this one, for instance. Now, this comes after John Prentice, which is played by Sidney Poitier. Um, his father has been speaking to him regarding the fact that he's in a relationship with a white woman. And he's going on and on about all that he's done for him, you know, as a mailman, all the sacrifices that he's made. And he is using it as sort of a justification as to why he should be able to tell his son what to do. Well, here is what he had to say to that. This was Sidney Poitier as John Prentice. And he says, 
You listen to me. You say you don't want to tell me how to live my life. So what do you think you've been doing? You tell me what rights I've got or haven't got and what I owe to you for what you've done for me. Let me tell you something. I owe you nothing. If you carried that bag a million miles, you did what you're supposed to do because you brought me into this world. And from that day, you owed me everything you could ever do for me. Like I will owe my son if I ever have another, but you don't own me. You can't tell me when or where I'm out of line or try to get me to live my life according to your rules. You don't even know what I am, dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I feel, what I think. And if I try to explain it the rest of your life, you will never understand. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has lain down and died will the dead weight be off our backs. You understand? You've got to get off my back. And then very softly he says, Dad, Dad, you're my father. I'm your son. I love you. I always have and I always will. But you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Every time it gets to that part, it's like, quiet, please, no talking. I have to hear it. It gives me goosebumps even right now as I'm reading it to you all, okay? Because that said, uh, I mean, just everything, right? When you're talking about the differences between generations and how we see each other, how we see certain behaviors, you know, that willingness to maybe stop generational curses. The person who finally says, wait a second, you know, the way this has always been done isn't the right way. They stop that treatment. And not only are they treating, uh, excuse me, are they teaching the older generation that, you know what, we understand that y'all went through this because you thought you had to, but you really don't. And we're not going to. And then they're teaching the new generation that we're going to about face and go in a different direction because the way it's always been done doesn't mean that it's always been right. So I love that quote. I love it. I love it. I love it. And the movie is filled with wonderful quotes like that, right? So, you know, Sydney plays a man in a relationship with a white woman who is played by Katherine Houghton, who in real life is the niece of Katherine Hepburn. And the film revolves around her bringing him to meet with her parents, who's played by Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. The film was one of the rare films at the time to depict an interracial marriage in a positive light because, you know, historically interracial marriages were illegal in the United States and it was still illegal in 17 states, mostly southern states, until June 12, 1967, which was just six months before the film was released film was a critical and financial success and in his film review our friend Robert Ebert, um, excuse me, Ebert described Sidney's character as a noble rich intelligent handsome ethical medical expert and that the film is a magnificent piece of entertainment goes on to say it'll make you laugh 
end, it may even make you cry. That is so true. So in order to win this role as Dr. Prentice in the film, Sidney Poitier had to actually audition for Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn at two separate dinner parties. Now, he began to be criticized, actually, for being typecast as this over-idealized African-American character who were not permitted to have any sexuality or personality faults, such as his character in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Poitier was aware of this pattern himself, but was conflicted on the matter, and he wanted more varied roles. But he also felt obliged to set an example with his characters by challenging old stereotypes, as he was the only major actor of African descent being cast in leading roles in the American film industry at the time. Now, ladies and gentlemen, kings and queens, there is so much that can be said about Sir Sidney Poitier, his work with the civil rights movement, for instance. But as always, I will leave that up to you all to read and learn about. But as I said uh, in my tribute to him on Instagram, he was a king indeed, who very quietly and strategically considered his path, knowing that with each role that he took, he continued to change the narrative as to how the African diaspora was represented in this country. And with each film, he dared to present an alternative to subservient roles, showing that we too could be anything that we aspired to be, and that we did not have to settle for the stereotypes that Hollywood was more than happy to perpetuate. This man exuded confidence in his countenance, not in a loud and boisterous way, but with a strength and distinguished elegance that celebrated the wonder and sophistication that is possessed by every Black man. Whether you realize it or not, my kings out there, you do. Thank you so much, Mr. Poitier, for leaving us with such pride and dignity because you lived and for your numerous examples within your movies showing us what royalty looks like, what it walks like, what it talks like. Rest in power and in peace. Now, how many of you out there love lasagna? And, and if you love lasagna, how do you make it? Like, do you make it with ground beef? Do you put like sausage in there? I mean, I know that there's also um, vegetarian options available, but either way, I think it's all delicious, right? Well, Lasagna Love is a global nonprofit and grassroots movement that aims to positively impact communities by connecting neighbors with neighbors through homemade meal delivery. They seek to eliminate stigmas associated with asking for help when it's needed most. It's hard to ask for help, isn't it? It's really, really hard. A lot of people see it as a weakness, but it's actually a strength. It's something that even I have to work on because it is hard to ask for help. You don't always think you can count on it, but there are those people out there who are willing to give it, right? Now, Lasagna Love was started at the beginning of the pandemic when the founder of Good to Mama, was looking for a way to help moms in her community. She and her toddler started making and delivering meals to families in the neighborhood 
were struggling. So they simply want to feed families, spread kindness, and strengthen communities. You know, that sounds a lot like village mentality. I mean, the point is we practice it, ladies and gentlemen, every single day. You might not be calling it that, but that's exactly what it is. When people come together, right, for a common goal in their collective strength to help one another, to help us get to that finish line, whatever it is that we're doing. And in this case, Lasagna Love is feeding communities. Now, it has since grown into an international movement with thousands of people all cooking and delivering meals to families in their communities. So they're not only here to help address the incredible rise in food insecurity among families, but they're here also to provide a simple act of love and kindness during a time full of uncertainty and stress. Now, how beautiful is that? On January 5th, 2022, Governor John Bell Edwards took the historic action of signing Louisiana's first posthumous pardon of Mr. Homer A. Plessy, who was convicted of violating Louisiana's Separate Car Act of 1890, the purpose of which was to ensure racial segregation as a means to promote white supremacy. Governor Edwards was joined by descendants of Homer A. Plessy, Justice John Harlan, and Judge John Ferguson, as well as by Southern University Professor of Law, Angela Bell, Orleans District Attorney Jason Williams, civil rights leaders, and a number of state and local elected officials. The governor says the first six decades of the 21st century should have been filled with infinitely more promise and progress in race relations. And they would have been had slavery and segregation given way to equality and freedom as a plain reading of the 13th and 14th Amendments required. Instead, the 1896 Plessy decision ordained segregation for the explicit purpose of declaring and perpetuating white supremacy as immoral and factually erroneous that was and is. The fictitious notion of separate but equal remained with us until the United States Supreme Court revisited the issue in 1954 in the context of public education and implicitly overruled Plessy. Now, Mr. Plessy's conviction should never have happened, he says, but there is no expiration on justice. No matter is ever settled until it is settled right. Amen to that. So it is with great joy that today I pardon Homer Plessy and settle this matter. We still have a long way to go when it comes to equality and justice, but this pardon is certainly a step in the right direction. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with this case, allow me to give you a brief summary of it, okay? On June 7th, 1892 in New Orleans, Louisiana, 
Mr. Homer, Homer A. Plessy. He purchased a first-class ticket on the East Louisiana Railroad Company train, which was bound for Covington. When he was asked by the conductor to leave and sit in the quote-unquote colored car, as required by the 1890 Separate Car Act. When he refused, he was arrested. The constitutionality of his arrest was challenged by Louis A. Martinet, Albion Torgi, and others in the Citizens Committee to test Louisiana's recently enacted racial segregation laws. The United States Supreme Court heard Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, and they held that the Constitution permitted legally enforced segregation on the basis of race. That allowed for the enactment of a slew of laws by Southern states that created the Jim Crow regime. So not only was it, you know, in these train cars, but it was in restaurants, it was uh, water fountains, it was at lunch counters where there was this separation, the segregation of white and black. And so that's what that case sort of like, you know, um, I don't know, lit the flame to, even though it didn't start segregation, it kind of gave the South license to promote it, right? Notably, Plessy's criminal conduct in 1892 was virtually the same as Rosa Parks' courageous protest, which happened 63 years later in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, when she refused to leave a seat designated for white riders. It was important that the office that prosecuted Homer Plessy be the office to ask for his name to be pardoned, said Orleans District Attorney Jason Williams. He also goes on to say, while Homer Plessy's actions made him guilty of a crime under law, it was the law that was the real crime. I applaud Governor Edwards for pardoning Homer Plessy and bringing full focus to this stain on our state's history so that we can become a more just Louisiana. Now, the Avery C. Alexander Act, authored by former Louisiana State Senator Edward Murray of New Orleans, created an expedited application process for posthumous pardons, and Mr. Plessy met all the criteria of the law. Now, here's another quote. With the stroke of his pen, Governor John Bell Edwards opens a new chapter in the legacy of Homer Adolph Plessy. That was said by one of his descendants, Keith Plessy, right? This historic posthumous pardon is proof that 125 years after his conviction, the state of Louisiana recognizes and honors Plessy for his role in opening the gates of the civil rights movement of the 20th century, unquote. Here's another quote. We cannot undo the wrongs of the past, but when our government officials publicly acknowledge them and take steps to legally correct them, we give hope to this generation and the next who will continue to be on the front lines in the fight for justice and equality in America, said Phoebe Ferguson, who was a descendant of Judge John H. Ferguson. And the last quote. On behalf of the Harlan descendants, I am honored to participate in this historic pardon of Homer Plessy. 
which represents an important step of progress and healing, said Kate Billingham. She goes on to say, our family has always valued the lone but vigorous descent of our great-great-grandfather, Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan in Plessy versus Ferguson. He was deeply committed to fairness, equality, and justice under the law. And we are moved to see this writing of a profound wrong that he identified 125 years ago. Whew, such a beautiful and very moving part of our history. It took place there in Louisiana just recently. And you know what, Village? I'm looking forward to seeing many more like it take place in our country. So January is Mental Wellness Month, and one of the things that can help turn negative thoughts into positive ones is through affirmations or positive self-talk, right? We are always more thoughtful about the things that we say when we are talking to other people, but we can completely destroy ourselves with what we say and think about ourselves, right? I mean, when they say that you are your own worst critic, tell me that y'all don't understand that, right? We can completely tear ourselves down. And the old saying, you are what you think, it might be true actually. For example, negative thoughts, they lead to more negative outlooks on life, right? Which can then lead to more negative thoughts. So this cycle of negativity, it results in stress, anxiety, depression, and it can be damaging to your physical health as well, right? So in order to break this cycle, it's important to introduce more positive thoughts into your life as often as possible, okay? And this is for everybody, for you kings, you queens, young kings and queens in training. It's for all of us to understand this, right? We all need to do this for ourselves. So what exactly is an affirmation? Well, the word affirm means to validate or confirm. And in the mental health world, affirmations are short, encouraging statements that you can use to create a more positive frame of mind, right? Now, you can repeat an affirmation to yourself as often as you like. You can do it while brushing your teeth or driving to work or before you fall asleep. Now, let me tell you something. My mom, one of my like staunchest, you know, supporters of all time, (laughs) she gave me an affirmation poster. And it's something that I look at from time to time. You know, if I'm feeling low, I'll take a look at it. And at the top of the poster, it has, I am. And there's all these various words there. You know, I am confident, I'm, I'm beautiful. I am such and such, right? Well, I tell you what, I also use those affirmations, kings and queens, when I'm doing my exercises, okay? Sometimes it can be a little hard and I might not be all the way together when I'm doing those exercises, but the exercise is, is it's you know important for me to do. So sometimes I, I look at that poster and I take that I am 
and I'm working through something difficult, I am a warrior. I am fierce. I am everything. I am strong. I am a survivor. And the next thing you know, that exercise is done. I've completed it, right? So positive thinking, positive affirmations definitely can help change your frame of mind from negative to positive right so it definitely um when you use it often it can help to reinforce your value and your self-worth and it can positively affect your behavior we oftentimes look to others to validate us or to affirm us to make us feel good about ourselves and i have been guilty of that because i actually i kind of thought that's how it worked that you know, the way people thought about you was everything. And I mean, like in my younger years until just like a few years ago, what everybody thinks of you is what matters, right? If they think that you're a good person, if they think you're worthy, that's what matters. No, because guess what? If you base everything about yourself on what other people think about you, imagine when they no longer think you're worthy or when they no longer think you should be loved or when they no longer think you're good at your job or whatever it is that they once thought you were good at, then your whole world crumbles because you put everything on what someone else thought about you instead of focusing on what you think about you, right? And let me tell you this, beautiful people, I'm telling it to you because I myself am living that same journey. I was somebody who for most of my life had a very low self-esteem. I didn't think highly of myself at all. And as a result of that negative thinking, I ended up getting myself into situations I wouldn't have been in had I thought better of myself, right? When you recognize your worth, your value, when you love yourself, it changes the trajectory of your life and it changes the situations that you allow yourself to be in, the people that you surround yourself with, so forth and so on. Because you know that you deserve to be loved. You know that you're a good person. You know that you are worthy. You know that you're valuable. And this by no means is being boastful or being arrogant or obnoxious in any kind of way. This is us speaking life life into ourselves and not relying on other people to do it. When you create that foundation and you have it rooted in your very soul right then anything in addition to that from somebody else who might think you're good or might think you're worthy is a bonus right it's an extra it's a cherry on top but it's no longer everything it's not your whole world and that's what we need to get to that i've been working on so with so many of us facing new challenges these days still dealing with the pandemic for instance now could be the perfect time to turn positivity into a regular habit. So try using one of these affirmations each week to help you stay positive so that you can continue to tackle your goals. Now I'm taking these affirmations that I'm about to read off to you from Kaiser Permanente, Thrive, right? So these are just some suggestions. You can make up your own, but I'm going to read them off pretty quickly. So if you guys you know, hear something that might work for you, great. If it's something that might influence you to make your own list, great. But let's start changing the way we're speaking to ourselves, right? Okay, so here we go. Ready? All right. <laughs> it just so happens that number one says, I am ready. 
My efforts help me succeed. I can make a real difference. My hard work will pay off. I am strong. I have the power to make the right choices for me. I have faith in my abilities. I got this. I am grateful for what I can do. I am happy to be me. My goals are achievable. I am confident. I will practice self-kindness. I'm on the right path for me. I am thankful for the love in my life. I will take action and accomplish my goals. Success is mine. I will find the good in all things. I'm always learning. I trust myself. I will try new things. I will turn negative thoughts into positive ones. I am safe. I love myself. Life is beautiful. I am powerful. I believe in myself. It's okay for me to have fun. My possibilities are endless. I am well rested and full of energy. I am relaxed and at peace. I am strong in my mind, body, and spirit. My life is a gift. I deserve love and happiness. I care for myself. Healthy food fuels my body. Today, I will succeed. I give myself room to grow. Each day is filled with joy. And last but not least, I embrace my power. Okay, that was 40. That was 40. Hopefully, maybe some of them work for you. If not, they'll inspire you to make your own list. I know that I'm learning that when we look for certain things in other people, we may find ourselves disappointed because the things that we're looking for, beautiful people, in other people, we actually need to find them within ourselves. It is to our own benefit that we learn how to see ourselves in a more positive light. Now, if we have struggled in that area, then these positive affirmations or the ones that you choose can be a way to turn things around. You know how they say, fake it until you make it? Well then, I'm gonna say, say it until you believe it. Speak life to your spirit and your soul. And little by little, take notice of how it's making you feel. You can do it. I believe in you. See what I just did there? Here's to brighter days. Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am 
stronger too Maybe But none of them Will ever love you The way I do It's me and you, boy And as the years go by A friendship will never die You're gonna see It's our destiny You got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got a friend in me Now that is something that I think that we all want to know it's that we have a friend that we can turn to and depend on, right? Well, Randy Newman definitely wanted to make sure that we knew that. The song was used as the theme song for the 1995 Disney, Disney Pixar animated film, Toy Story. And actually it was used throughout all of the movies that uh, uh, Pixar would make, Toy Story 2, 3, and 4. So I just thought that that would be a nice light song because yeah, I want you all to know Village, you've got a friend in me. Now this song was the second single from his fourth studio album, Still Crazy After All These Years, released on Columbia Records in 1975 and providing backup vocals were singers Valerie Simpson, Patty Austin, along with Phoebe Snow. This song became the artist's sole number one hit as a solo artist on the Billboard Hot 100 in the US. And it was his highest position in France where it peaked there at number two. The single was certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America, denoting sales of over 1 million copies. Following his divorce from his first wife, he opted to take a more humorous approach to document the event. Here's Paul Simon with 50 ways to leave your lover. <laughs> now, y'all might want to take some notes if you need some suggestions. <laughs> and, and when we come back, I will get into today's topic. Problem is all inside your head, she said to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. I'd like to help you in your struggle to be free. There must be 50 ways to leave your lover. She said it's really not my habit to intrude. Furthermore, I hope my meaning won't be lost or misconstrued. But I'll repeat myself. At the risk of being crude, there must be 50 ways to leave your lover 
50 ways to leave your lover You just slip out the back, Jack Make a new plan, Stan You don't need to be coy, Roy Just get yourself free Or Hop on the bus, Gus You don't need to discuss much Just drop off the key, Lee And get yourself free Ooh, slip out the back, Jack Make a new plan, Stan You don't need to be coy, Roy You just listen to me Hop on the bus, Gus You don't need to discuss much Just drop off the key, Lee And get yourself free She said, it grieves me so to see you in such pain I wish there was something I could do to make you smile again I said, I appreciate that And would you please explain about the 50 ways She said, why don't we both just sleep on it tonight And I believe in the morning you begin to see the light And then she kissed me And I realized she probably was right There must be 50 ways to leave your lover 50 ways to leave your lover You just slip out the back, Jack Make a new plan, Stan You don't need to be coy, Roy Just get yourself free Or you hop on the bus, Gus You don't need to discuss much Just drop off the key, Lee Okay, Village, so today I would like to talk to you about weathering, weathering, you know, like weathering the storm. Are you familiar with the term? I mean, I'm just actually learning about it myself and I thought that it would be important to talk to you about because it's yet another example of how our mental health, particularly in communities of color, can be affected. So basically, weathering is defined as a sort of like wearing or being worn out by long exposure to something, right? I mean, it could be the hemisphere, friend, or the atmosphere, excuse me. Let's think about the Appalachian Mountains here on the East Coast. Now, there was a time when they stood taller than the Himalayan Mountains do today, but slow erosion of rock over time by rain and snow have reduced mountain ranges that were higher than the Himalayas now being low-lying hills. <clears throat> now, in this instance, we are talking about repeated exposure to socioeconomic adversity, political marginalization, racism, and perpetual discrimination, which all can be harmful to your mental health, right? 
as a result of bigotry. The same thing happens to communities of color. Any person or group of people that is marginalized by the society in which they live faces erosion by the cumulative effects of that inequality. So just there, you know, it's letting you know that it's not just about African-American, African-Americans or people of color, but it can be about any marginalized group. And we'll talk about it a little bit later. Whether it is a phenomenon which is characterized by long-term physical, mental, emotional, and psychological effects of racism and of living in a society characterized by white dominance and privilege. The results of weathering are poorer health outcomes, lower longevity rates, poor mental health, and overall diminished quality of life for those who experience it. The term weathering was coined by Dr. Arlene Geronimus, who was a public health researcher, and currently she serves as a professor in the Health Behavior and Health Education Department at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Now, although the intent and perception of racism varies greatly and isn't always so easily defined, the psychological and biological effects are continually present and compounding. Those who are marginalized, they don't get to function in its absence, right? It's just this ongoing thing over and over and over again. There's like no escape from it. Injustice and inequality are the matrix with which they interact with society and in all circumstances. So there's no downtime, right? You, you, you just, you can't even get away from it. Fear and uncertainty, unfortunately, are the baseline. So how does weathering manifest in marginalized communities, right? So let's talk about that. In African-American communities, racism may lead to premature biological aging and poor health outcomes, like disproportionately high death rates from chronic conditions such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and most cancers, right? We're always looking at the fact that African-Americans seem to have, you know, high rates when it comes to any of these kinds of, of diseases. And you always wonder why. Well, weathering can contribute to this, right? The idea that we're constantly faced with racism and bigotry, discrimination of some kind, you know, because like it said, it varies because it depends on where you live in the country. Some some places you might live and you might be completely unfazed, untouched by it. And then there are places where you may live and it's still very evident, still very obvious in the way that you are treated, right? Women, right? We're talking about marginalized groups. So women fall under that category. And it doesn't say, you know, Black women or Latinx women or Asian women. Women, okay? Higher depression rates. They are no longer explained by biology alone. And there's a belief among scientists that widespread sexual and physical abuse and unequal power and status in society have drastic effects on their health. How about our brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ plus community? Now youth face higher rates of mental illness and suicidal risk than heterosexual youth. 
at least partially due to fractured social networks and stigma amongst family members. The Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which was given in 2016, it found that 34% of LGBTQ plus youth, they were bullied in school and that nearly a quarter, which is about 23% of youth, were the victims of sexual violence. Let's take a look at post 9-11. There was a study that found more than 50% of Muslim youth in the United States reported experiencing bullying in schools. Researchers concluded this early exposure to discrimination is likely to have cumulative health effects over the course of their life, such as poor sleep, cognitive impairment, psychological distress, and coronary artery calcification, which is often a precursor to heart disease. These are some pretty like serious things that happen to these different groups, right? That are constantly dealing with some form of racism or discrimination or inequality, right? How does weathering affect the body? Well, I mean, chronic stress combined with individual and systemic bigotry can lead to dangerous health outcomes. For example, there was a study that was published in Developmental Psychology, and it found that assessments of discrimination and segregation were correlated with adult inflammation. All right, that's on your insides. I can't feel too good. This study even found that the effect of discrimination and segregation were more robust than the effects of risk factors, such as your diet or exercise, whether or not you smoke, and even um, socioeconomic status. So the idea that discrimination and segregation are stronger risk factors than many of the ones that we're always associating with chronic illness was posited by this study and convincingly so. They were able to show how it's true. Now, though there are factors that can build resiliency in marginalized groups, the damage that racism causes is difficult to avoid. And it is insulting to ask the recipient of racism to then avoid something that's been baked into our social systems for centuries, right? So, you know, like turn the other cheek, oh, don't worry about it. But yet everything you touch, racism, systemic racism, and I've said it before, it impacts every aspect of life. So how do you talk to a person who's experiencing racism or discrimination in one way or another? How do you tell them, oh, you know, just kind of get over it, move on. Don't let it bother you. It's all good. Like, how do you, how do you do that? On top of the fact that they're already experiencing what they are, right? So in America, there are certain individuals who are just simply not permitted to realize their full potential while the privileged parts of society remain willfully or unwillingly blind to the degradation, right? We talked about white immunity. When something doesn't affect you, it's not bothering you. It's not, you know, making things difficult for you. It's not affecting me or mine. So why should I have to be concerned about it? Um, I don't know. For the sake of your neighbor, you know, your, your, community members, other Americans, other women, other men, other children, like 
it's not just about you. You don't live alone here in the country, in the world, on this planet. There are other people here. So it matters. It matters. And your privilege or your immunity kind of keeps you from having to face some of the realities that your privilege has caused, you know, um, the difficulty in people's lives as a result of it. So you're benefiting from it. You're benefiting from it. You're, you're striking gold while over here, there are food deserts and food insecurity. And, you know, the schools don't have the same materials. And as we're going through this pandemic, there are groups of people who don't have broadband access. Uh, some, some don't have homes, but you're over here living a good life. Like, really? You don't think that you should maybe consider your fellow man in one way or another? Okay. Now, according to an article written by Anna Sandoyu, I hope I said that correctly. And if I don't, I apologize, Anna. I didn't say it correctly. Um, she says that if there's one thing that the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing Black Lives Matter protests that followed have made abundantly clear is this. Racism, it kills. Okay? Discrimination and marginalization can also just slowly chip away at one's health, causing those who are at the receiving end of discriminatory attitudes to age or even die prematurely. Now, kings and queens, if you've been following the show, you know that I have mentioned that when it comes to mental health, mental illness, it does not only exist because of chemical imbalance, but there could be external causes as well that can be damaging to our mental and our physical health because they're they're really linked together. And I think it's more than what people may realize. So it's it's very important to bring awareness to this issue because we as a community are used to operating out of survival mode, right? We have a tendency to ignore our needs as it relates to our health. And then we end up in a reactive position instead of a preventative one. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, for those of us, for instance, who have a, a you know, mistrust or distrust of doctors, for instance, if I'm one, I'm raising my hand, I'm guilty. I'm not always so ready to go to the doctor, you know, because you can be experiencing things and you go to the doctor and the next thing I know, you know, you're sort of like made to feel as if the symptoms or whatever it is you're experiencing are just all in your head. And as a black woman in particular, the more I read, I understand that we are a group in the population that really are ignored more than any other group. Our concerns about our health are not really taken seriously. And as a result, there are a lot of health issues that we as black women face again, disproportionately to those of our white counterparts, say for instance, right? And I'll be talking more about that in um, some episodes, I don't know, a couple episodes from now where I'm talking about our health as women. And I'll also be talking about health as men. So not leaving you out, Kings, you're, you're gonna be addressed too. But we have a tendency to end up going more, you know, to like the emergency room than to a primary care doctor. That's what we're saying when we're talking about a reactive um, position instead of a preventative one. Because, you know, when you have your regular doctor, you have your regular checkups, 
and you know you're able to call them if you're experiencing something where you know if it falls outside of your regular you know checkup time you can make an appointment to go in and be seen by the doctor as opposed to going to um, the emergency room so as dr geronimus noted the negative effects of weathering on the health of black people and people of color are unlikely to go anywhere until we fix issues of structural racism and discrimination. Now, getting rid of structural racism, um, it just might take a minute. I, I mean, it has been here for centuries and it is woven into the very fabric of this country. So it would be for the best if we could learn how to take care of ourselves and find ways to relieve the stress. For example, the news, right? It can totally be a source of stress, right? I mean, there's so much going on all around us. Just recently, there've been two big tragic fires, one in Philadelphia and the other in the Bronx in New York City. Now in the first fire in Philadelphia, 12 people unfortunately lost their lives and eight of them were children. And in the second fire in the Bronx, at last report, there were 17 people who lost their lives and a number of them were children as well. And they say that the numbers may increase as there were many people that were hospitalized, right? Now it's one thing to be informed, but you do not have to watch every single news cycle there is because it will for sure leave you feeling anxious and depressed. So maybe one way to alleviate the stress is to limit your viewing time, right? Now, something else that you might want to consider are the people that you have around you. The people in your life should be a source of reducing stress, not causing more of it, right? So you might want to take a look at, at who's hanging around or who you're hanging around. Are they speaking life into you and making you feel good? Or are they stressing you out to the point where you just can't even see straight? Like you got to make some adjustments then if that's the case. Now, Brown University actually had some recommendations for coping with race-related stress for their students, right? So here are some of their recommendations. Build a support network. You know, it's more than likely that you're probably not the only person on campus who's dealing with race-related stress. So connecting with other people with similar experiences and feelings can help you to successfully navigate racism, right? Um, spirituality. If it plays an important role in your life, then utilize your belief system as a way to cope with stress, which is exactly what enslaved peoples did. Even though we know that Christianity was introduced as a justification by white men as to the existence of slavery, I believe that my ancestors took a lemon and made lemonade. That's what they did. They used their spirituality, their beliefs in a higher being as they were going through the atrocity of slavery. That's how they got through. And in a lot of instances today, it's how we still get through. That's why a lot of people are very strong about their spiritual belief. And it's not for us to judge anybody's spiritual belief. All right, if it's not yours, then it's not yours, but keep that to yourself and let people be who they are, you know, because if it's a way that can help you cope with your stress, then go for it, right? It can involve connecting with others who share your spiritual beliefs. 
confide in your spiritual leaders or participate in spiritual rituals like prayer and meditation. If that's what will help, then go for it, right? How about having a positive cultural identity and a strong sense of yourself? That can be particularly helpful in combating race-related stress or stereotype threat. They also talk about becoming involved in social action, documenting acts of racism or intolerance. They recommend that you don't ignore it or minimize the experiences and maybe think broadly about what could be an act of racism. And it doesn't always have to be so overt, okay? Um, It could be a professor who never calls on you um, or that minimizes whatever contributions you make in class, right? Or you might be looking at the curriculum and recognize that it's racially biased, those kinds of things. You might want to talk to somebody that you can trust, report that, right? They also recommend that you be strategic in your social acting, especially when you're attempting to change policy or procedures. It is important that you do it effectively by being clear about what it is that you want to see changed, being clear about how you see that change being implemented, and making sure that you're talking to the person or the department that will most likely be able to get you what you want. They also recommend that you be mindful of timing. For example, think about when it's the right time to share your experiences and frustration, when it's time to work on the change, and when is it time to negotiate, right? They also say don't work in isolation, get a team so that the work on these tasks aren't so daunting for any one person. Delegate, yes, it's important to delegate. I mean, after all, a village comes together in their collective strength in order to achieve a common goal. Ladies and gentlemen, we practice it every single day. We just don't realize that's what it is. It's village mentality. It's a togetherness. It's understanding that we are one big family. And even though we may not be related by blood, you're a human being. I'm a human being. We're a part of the human race. And when we have a similar experience, it can pull us closer as a result, right? And so don't work in isolation, get a team. Call people out when you witness acts of injustice and intolerance and try not to get discouraged. Again, change, it's not gonna happen overnight, right? These movements, they're a long process. Remember, they're a marathon, not a sprint, right? Don't underestimate, do not underestimate the power that you have to make change. Student involvement, as they say, it's been instrumental in starting major movements throughout history. So that's what Brown University was talking to their students about, you know, encouraging them on their journey in dealing with race and discrimination in order to help them, right? So there you have it, beautiful people. We have been weathering racism for as long as this country has been in existence and our ancestors were enslaved here. So we as communities of color, we're in the habit of operating out of survival mode, not realizing the impact that weathering racism has on our mental health, as well as our physical health. We are disproportionately affected by chronic health conditions, such as heart disease, diabetes, and some forms of cancer. 
I'm just saying that again because I, I need you all to understand how important it is and how these external forces can weigh on us, our mental health, our physical health, our spiritual health, our emotional health, right? It's important that you understand that. So we must learn how to alleviate the stress because ultimately it can kill you.
That was neo-soul artist Erica Badu, who's famous for her alter egos. You know, you can call her Badula Oblagata, Sarah Bellum, Analog Girl in a Digital World, or Manuela Maria Mexico, <laughs> just to name a few. Now, didn't you know, not to be confused with didn't you know, is the second single from singer Erica Badu's 2000 album, Mama's Gun. The song was nominated for the Grammy Award for Best R&B Song for 2001. Didn't You Know was produced by fellow Soulquarian member Jay Dila, and it features a sample from the Tariqa Blue recording, Dream Flower. And, you know, it was kind of used without prior permission from the group and a settlement fee had to be reached with the group outside of court. See, so, you know, when you're sampling other people's material, you know, you gotta either give them credit or get permission or, or something. Now the song, it peaked at number 28 on the R&B hip hop chart. All right, beautiful people, so it's, time for the inspirational story of this week and the story for this week is called the thirsty crow so here's the story one hot summer day a crow was feeling very thirsty it flew all over the fields looking for water but all was in vain it flew here and there for a long time but it could not find water to quench its thirst finally it felt feeble and almost lost all hope to find water. Suddenly, it saw a pitcher below a tree. It flew down to see if it had any water inside. And yes, it could see some water at the bottom of the pitcher. The crow tried to push his head into the jug, but the crow could not reach the water with its beak. The neck of the pitcher was too long and the water level was too low. Then it tried to tilt the pot for the water to flow out, but the pot was too heavy and it did not move an inch. Now, the tired crow thought hard for a while. It looked around and it found some pebbles, which gave it a good idea. It picked the pebbles one by one and dropped them in the pitcher. As more and more pebbles were dropped into the pot, the water level started rising. Soon, the water level was high enough for the crow to drink from it. It drank the water, quenched its thirst, and happily flew to its destination. Now, what's the moral of the story? Well, every problem is solvable if you work hard to solve it. So never let the difficulties and challenges in your life bring you down. Work hard and use it to learn and to grow. Now this was the third single from the group's eponymous debut album. In 1989, the song became the first 
number one R&B single for the group. It was also the group's first top 10 pop single, peaking at number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. Ready or Not was certified gold on August 14th, 1990. So here's the group after seven with Ready or Not.
kindness in your eyes Give you courage in a world of compromise Yes, I would If I could I would teach you all the things I've never learned And I'd help you cross the bridge Yes, I would If I could I would try to shield your innocence from time But the part of life I gave you is in mine I'll watch you grow So I can let you That was singer-songwriter Regina Bell, who started her career in the mid-1980s. She is known for her singles, Baby Come to Me, which was released in 1989, and Make It Like It Was, 
released in 1990. She also had a notable duet with Peebo Bryson, A Whole New World, for the feature film Aladdin in 1992, for which they won a Grammy Award. Belle, she grew up in Inglewood, New Jersey, and she attended Rutgers University, and she became the first female vocalist with the school's jazz ensemble. Her musical influences include Phyllis Hyman, Billie Holiday, Shirley Caesar, Patti LaBelle, and Nancy Wilson, who was a musical jazz great and actress who originally recorded this beautiful song, If I Could, which was on her Nancy Now album. Regina Bell covered the song in 1993. Well, kings and queens, it looks like we've come to the end of another show. I do hope that all of the information that was provided in today's episode will be of help to you. Remember, it's always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram at villagementality.ckm as in Mary and on Facebook at Village Mentality the Podcast. You can catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. And there is a link to each episode available on Instagram at villagementality.ckm and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. And you can also catch episodes on theawakenlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality. Well, just remember, beautiful people, I need you to get this deep down in your soul. God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, my beautiful people. And here's to brighter days. Energy so stale in the air. Everybody's running scared. Used to be so carefree, used to be so happy, used to have everything we need. Yeah.